Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Methamphetamine. <laughs> okay, you're starting. Yeah, I'm starting. This is Methamphetamine 101. Yeah, this is number 45 podcast. We should have done this before we did Methamphetamine Psychosis. A couple weeks ago. But we'd lost our minds. You know, it's okay. We got them all primed with the crazy stuff. Now we'll kind of go back and explain it a little bit more. I really like the historical part of this too, so. You always do. I know. So. The history is just amazing. So, so what, what is meth? Well, it goes by a million different names. We are going to list them because I think it's important to know what patients are referring to because how often does a patient come in and say, I'm using speed? Okay, well, is that cocaine? Is it meth? Is it just Sudafed or what is it? So also known as meth, crank, speed, blue, ice, crystal, redneck cocaine, LA glass, and soap dope. Nice. N-methyl-1-phenylpropan-2-amine. Wow. We should probably say that like every time we talk about methamphetamine, just say its actual name. I think we'll look really smart. So anyway, it is a man-made amphetamine that is a potent CNS stimulant. Um, So, you know, you've heard of all the meth labs, which have actually kind of gone out of, they're, they're not as in vogue anymore because they're, more expensive to do and more dangerous than just buying meth from Mexico. Yeah. And it's, I've never obviously seen methamphetamine, but it's a white odorless crystalline substance. It's a powder. Powder. So let's talk about the history. Let's go way back. Um, Ironically, it was first synthesized the same year Kurt was born in 1887. (laughs) (laughs) Like what I did there. Yeah. I remember when I grew up as a kid, you (laughs) know. Anyway, in so. 1890s. <laughs> so yeah, it was first synthesized in 1887 by the University of Ber- at the University of Berlin by a chemist by the name of Lazar Edenlu. Yeah, nice try. Edenlu. If I ever have another child, which is impossible, but I if I was to have one, I'd name that child Lazar. I, have you seen anybody named Lazar? No, ever. No, I haven't. Um, later sold it as. Uh, Benzedrin, which was inhaled, and it was used to treat, not surprising, asthma. Really? There you go. I mean, you're, you were just so up, you forgot you couldn't breathe. <laughs> and then, in the 1890s, of course, they synthesized it from ephedrine. And that was actually in Japan. And that guy's name's just as good. Nagai Nagashiyashi. Nagayoshi? Nagayoshi. I wonder if that's where the Mario Brothers Yoshi came from. I think so. And it was considered kind of an alternative to ephedra. And, of course, ephedrine, we all know ephedrine. Right. So, um, there you go. But then it was quiet for a while. Quiet for a while. 1919 is when crystal meth came to be crystal meth. Synthesized methamphetamine hydrochloride from ephedrine using phosphorus and iodine. So this is where you then produce that water-soluble crystalline substance. Oh, if only I'd have known to tell my mom that iodine she was putting on my cuts. She could have used it to make methamphetamine. 
didn't know. I don't know if your state patrolman father would have approved. Probably not. <laughs> and again, so now they have this water-soluble crystalline substance back in the 1919. And then it really kind of, again, it's around. But World War II is where it really came into being used a lot. I would say popularity is probably not the right word. No. But you know, a lot of things, if you think about it with these substances we've talked about, and we'll probably say it a thousand more times, but a lot of them seem to come into favor around the wars. Yeah, and actually, I've read a lot about this in the past, about how during World War II they used methamphetamine for different things, and that whole, you know, uh, blitzkrieg, uh, a lot of times it was fueled by methamphetamine. But the German World War II soldiers uh, took it, um, and as well, uh, Japanese kamikaze pilots. I just love the word kamikaze. Huh. <laughs> and uh, and they, of course, were using it to stay awake and alert, and, man, they could just go forever. But, of course, it also caused people to be aggressive, which in battle, obviously not a bad thing. Right. If you think battle's a good thing. But I wonder if there's ever... Um documentation anywhere in historical stuff with um, people using, you know, some of these people who are using it on purpose for these things and that got agitated and aggressive acting against themselves, you know, like within their own troop or pod or whatever they're called. All I know is that uh, I've seen different things where you could actually buy it over the counter in Germany Hmm. uh, during World War II. And again, it was considered a pretty normal thing to take uh, for a lot of different reasons, but... Yeah, wartime use. So yeah, then into the 50s, um, really became an epidemic in Japan, and then that's when the increased use in the USA happened. Um, And actually, you can get over-the-counter methamphetamine pills, um, especially in Japan, because of the the stockpiles that they had left over from these kamikaze pilots. And so, Mm. yeah, I don't know what they were marketing it as, like energy to stay awake, or, you know, if they were using it more like sinus stuff but need to study <laughs> there you go and also the non-medical use started to to increase in the usa during the 50s yeah and then it uh and then obitrol the fda actually approved a mixture of amphetamine and drugs for obesity in 1960 and uh this was actually the drug of choice for well none other than andy warhol that's because you know how much to make all those little dots he was the dude that made like. He made the Campbell soup cans. Right, but he all those little dots. He'd use like pixels. Is how he painted his stuff. Mm. And so, can you imagine having to like do that? It's like, anyway. <laughs> that was a tangent, and actually in the '60s, this was used actually somewhat IV at times, and so it kind of started to turn from originally a powder or something that you would uh, consume to something that you would IV. Right. And then in, the, in 1967, um, prescription methamphetamine hit the peak of 31 million prescriptions in the U.S. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, it's amazing because I was alive during that time. And I don't ever recall my mom saying, you know what, just take this methamphetamine pill and go out and play. Mm. Never happened. And uh, <laughs> But it was pretty common. But, of course, a lot of things were common back then that – that people use. In fact, I can remember talking to somebody who went through surgical residency at that point, and everybody took amphetamines to stay awake uh, from what he said. But I think that uh, having methamphetamine basically being a prescription drug at that time is pretty amazing, mm-hmm. uh, considering where we're at now. 
(laughs) Right. So then in 1971 is when the Big Controlled Substances Act came, and this is when methamphetamine actually got classified as Schedule II controlled substance. So, you know, you ne- there's there's some medical use in a Schedule II, but a lot, a lot, a lot of risk for um, abuse and addiction potential is where you get the Schedule IIs. Um, so, you know, like your narcotics are Schedule II. So motorcycle gangs actually made the most and distributed the most in the U.S. Yeah, it's embarrassing that I was kind of part of that. <laughs> I was 10 and uh, I was in this gang, Yeah. California, long story. Mm. But yeah, so that that's where really it became a drug of abuse and was being basically uh, distributed by these gangs throughout the entire country in the 70s. And of course, then the 80s. When I finally came to be. Yeah, and I was in college. <laughs> uh, but there, it became quite the problem in California at that time. And and actually, kind of that introduction of it as a smokable uh, substance uh, kind of came into being there. And there were a lot of regulations around the sell, the sale of ephedrine uh, at that time because it was also the precursor to methamphetamine, which we all know. That's why it's behind the counter now. But that didn't happen until in Minnesota until... It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. No, but I was in, I think I was in college when that happened. Julie Rosen, actually Senator Rosen in Minnesota, was the one who authored that that yeah. bill to put it behind the counter Yeah, I'd like, in Minnesota. I'd like 100 packs of that. I've got a bad cold. Well, you know, I have a friend that I'm not going to get very detailed, but yeah. as a high-level athlete in a very high-level um, university setting playing a high-level sport, they would pop a handful of ephedrine, Sudafed, tablets before games um unplug the nose so no they would they'd call them um the red rockets or something like that so Mm. anyway then we're jumping to the 90s imported from mexico so increasing use more people were using methamphetamines from two percent of the population in 1994 to five percent of the population by 2004 were using methamphetamines yeah and that's uh pretty insane but it was much cheaper uh when it came from mexico it was a big cost issue I think prior to that, it was just being made in everybody's garage uh, in Minnesota. And uh, now is is what we hear from all the DEA-type people. This is mostly coming from Mexico at this point. So 2006, Kurt? Yeah. It's now the most abused hard drug on earth. And the United Nations actually in 2006 came out and said that this was the second most abused illicit drug, only second to cannabis. And I think that's uh, primarily due to the high use in the Asian countries. Hmm. Um, so it's not just us here in the Americas, but uh, really all around. So now we're going to jump to when it really became a thing. So 2017, if we're looking at a lot of the numbers and a lot of the, the historical facts, not that old, 1.6 million people, so 0.5% used methamphetamine Um, But it was also involved in 15% of all overdose deaths. I mean, we know this, that most overdose deaths are not related to just one substance. Usually it's multi-drugs on board. Yeah. Um, And I think that often we, you know, we talk a lot about the opioid overdoses, but obviously methamphetamine is right up there as one of the biggest, uh, biggest problems for overdose death. So, and really, if you look, what, 964,000 people of a methamphetamine use disorder. So that's almost a million people in this country. So, and you know, we see them with some frequency. And 0.5% of high schoolers used meth. 
with the highest use actually in Western and Midwest USA. Man, the harshest thing I ever used during high school was gum. But uh, not like, what was it, that one? Zolt or Bolt or? Yeah, Bolt. Bolt pop. Yeah. Okay, I drank a couple of those. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's pretty amazing. And the highest use actually in the U.S. seems to be more in the Western and Midwestern part of the USA. I, I literally just said that. And, I, and I, <laughs> I say that again because that's so important. Oh my goodness gracious. I just want to highlight the mm-hmm. Midwest and the West because it, I don't listen to anything that you say. So, and then we've already said this, that, you know, by 2017, primarily produced in Mexico, it's more pure, whatever that means, potent, cheap. And this is, of course, when there were so many more restrictions on ephedrine and pseudoephedrine. You know, you need to show your license, you need to sign your life away, promise to not make meth to get any kind of ephedrine product. Um, And there's some geographic variability in how people use it throughout the country. That was noisy. Um, You can inject it. You know, uh, insulate it, which is hilarious. So snorting, snorting smoking, or ingesting. Um, I actually had a patient tell me that they'd wrap it in like a toilet paper and swallow that, thinking that then none of the drug would touch his teeth. So then they couldn't get rotten teeth, even though that's not, not where outwards. it comes from. But that's how he would take it. Mm. Actually, if you look at the the world, I know that's hard for you because this is like way outside your boundaries, but globally, we got 35 million people using methamphetamine recreationally. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a few. I think that's uh, that's a ton of people. And Sorry. I did have something funny to say. But okay, go, go for it. No, now I forgot it. You didn't take your air stuff this morning or what? Um, you know, and methamphetamine use is a little bit more like ecstasy use rather than like heroin in that there's like a binge and crash p- pattern. So people will use meth Friday night to early in the morning going into Sunday, like just use it and then kind of crash Sunday and then can function at work the rest of the week and then use again on the weekends in some cases. So that eventually spreads out to more frequent use, but Especially at the beginning, it starts with this binge and crash cycle. Mm. How about the neurobiology, Dr. Bell? Oh, your favorite topic. Yeah, I hate it. So this is a drug that is very lipophilic. Uh, It's got a methyl group on it, so it whips into your fat. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So obviously, it's similar to amphetamine, considering it's kind of made through that and stimulates the neurotransmitters the same way as amphetamine would. I know I'm going off script here, but... I think one of the interesting things, I actually had a discussion about this today with someone, how sometimes it's similar to amphetamine, and a lot of the amphetamines that we prescribe, such as Adderall, occasionally methamphetamine is actually a contaminant. And so I have had cases where they will have a positive methamphetamine and amphetamine, and in fact, their methamphetamine level is so low and is considered contaminant. Just a just an aside. There you go. I mean, I... I couldn't hold off. (laughs) So how does it work? It inhibits the monoamine reuptake, and it increases the release. So not only does it prevent the neurotransmitters from getting back into the cell, it actually increases the cells shooting it out. So then you just get this huge burst of, you know, neurotransmitters floating around. Mm. And actually that wears off, that big euphoria effect wears off, even before the drug is out of the CNS. So it does accumulate in the CNS, though. Yes. I think that's something we need to remember. And 
kind of that reinforcement is due to that kind of dopaminergic neurotransmission in the mesolimbic tract. That's a lot of words. Mesocorticolimbic? That's exactly what I meant. (laughs) So that's that whole dopamine, and we talk about this, and it's that 4,000% above baseline. Some places say 1,000% above baseline, but if you're comparing that to the average dopamine burst with like a great meal, great sex of, you know, 200, 250, cocaine of like 300, 350, all the other drugs of abuse, nicotine, heroin, that 250 to 300. If you're thinking increasing by one to 4,000, nothing comes close. Even if you combine all those other things, nothing comes close. Man, that's the problem. And I think that's the problem that we see in the clinic is after that, people just never quite... Well, they know what it's like to feel the best. Feel like Bernie sitting with a pair of mittens on? That is so bizarre. I, I wanted to put I wanted to put that in our talk. Like, like everybody close your eyes and picture that unless that you're driving. Meme. Yes. That's a weird meme. <laughs> so because it all accumulates in the CNS, as we just mentioned, you can get uh, methamphetamine-induced neurotoxicity, um, especially with chronic use which then can create some of the cognitive effects and chronic cognitive changes you'll see. So I think that's probably where we're going to... No, cognitive effects. We're going to talk a little bit about that first. Go ahead. So (laughs) low-dose methamphetamine will cause damage to the certinergic pathways in the frontal cortex, hippocampus, so, you know, your adulting areas, your memory areas. High-dose, though, causes damage to the stratum parietal cortex, so you get... Decreased density of your dopamine D2 receptors, which also then decreases serotonin, dopamine, norepi with chronic use. So this is what happens when a person who's been using it chronically stops using it. They get that depressed kind of, I don't say personality, but they're almost like this, you know, blah. They can't ever quite get that level. Not only is it because they know what the best is, They've also had so many neurotransmitter changes that they just can't get their normal, your normal baseline surges like you should have. Um, so other things they'll notice, episodic memory loss, executive function, so you're adulting, processing speed, motor skills, language, visual, visual constructional abilities. Man, you just kept going like I wasn't even here. Well, there's one more thing if you want to, uh, you don't have it. You pretty much cut me out of this, the rest of this talk. <laughs> So I can just you, say that I've felt very similarly when I've stopped at Mountain Dew for more than a day. It's not pretty. Yep, go not ahead. pretty. So finally, the physiological effects. So what happens when you're using it? Increased wakefulness, thus everything we talked about with these you know, World War II fighter pilots. Increased physical activity. Um, so these would be people who almost look manic. They're just going for days on end. Decreased appetite. And some of the other effects that obviously start down the road of not awesome to your body, things outside of the CNS, tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, arrhythmias, rhabdo, rhabdomyolysis, and seizures. Yeah, and just as an aside, because I'm kind of the aside guy today, uh, the talk today with uh, the RPEP students, again, these people can look like mania. And remember that if you have somebody that looks like bipolar with mania, you can't really diagnose them with that unless they've been off the substance for about a month. So often these people will have what looks like mania. That doesn't mean they have true di- true bipolar disorder or mania. Right, yeah, we've often seen patients that have a diagnosis of 
um, yeah, bipolar, bipolar. Mm-hmm. on their on their chart, and really what it's been is that cycle between meth and heroin or speedballing, and so they, depending on the drug, and get them off of it all, and all of a sudden they, you get to take the diagnosis off, which yeah. is kind of super cool. The diagnosis implies absence of drug effect. How was that? Ooh, that was deep. I know. With that, we should end. You sounded very brilliant. Oh, thanks. So we will be back next week. Hopefully you will be. Uh, so we'll let Battle Lights take over. <laughs> Thank you. One summer evening, drunk to hell, I sat there nearly lifeless. An old man in the corner sang where the water lilies grow. And on the jukebox, Johnny sang about a thing Your name and how would you bloody know? In blood and death neath the screaming sky, I lay down on the ground. And the arms and legs of other men were scattered all around. Some cursed, some prayed, some prayed, then cursed, then prayed and bled some more. That I could see was a pair of brown eyes that was looking at me. But when we got back labeled parts one to three, there was no pair of brown eyes waiting for me. And a rove and a rove and a rove and I'll go for a pair of brown eyes. Where the wind was gently laughing 